And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor of History, Ulster County Community College. Hans, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Also in the studio with us is the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Mark, it's great to have you here again. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Well, when you guys are here, it means we have a very interesting topic regarding history. Looking at the calendar today, it's uh, July the 2nd, so no surprise, this is about Independence Day. In my hands, I've got a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Looking around the room, I see you guys brought your own copy. So, Hans, maybe we'll begin with you. What is the significance of the Declaration? Well, it lays out the reasons why the men we call the Founding Fathers thought it was necessary to declare their independence from Great Britain. They had already done so. Um, in fact, today, July 2nd, is actually the, the day Congress voted to declare independence. Mm. Uh, the Declaration is adopted two days later, and that's what we celebrate on the 4th. Mm-hmm. But it lays out the reasons why they believed that the time had come to break away from the mother country and become their own nation. Mark, I was impressed with some of the words in this Declaration of Independence Looking on the first paragraph, I see the phrases, uh, the laws of nature and nature's God. And I thought, wow, that's kind of neat. Yeah, this document is an amazing document for so many reasons. It has a, if you will, a summary of what governments ought to be. And it's very radical in its time, because if you notice, first off, they realize that there are, quote unquote, inalienable rights. And that there's truth that is self-evident. And why is this truth self-evident? Why are these inalienable rights? Well, it's because they've been given by God. Mm. And it implies that there's a revelation that really tells us what things are right and what things are wrong. And it comes from God. And no doubt the writers of this were looking to the, the Bible. Mm-hmm. For many of these things. So when you're looking at this document, then they turn around and they say, the government is there for the people and not the people for the government. Imagine that. <laughs> what a kick in the teeth to George III. <laughs> you know, you read my mind uh, leading up to this, Hans, and you mentioned George III. What are some of the things taking place in what would become America leading up to this time? Well, yeah, George III... Um, I, you know, it's a good question about whether or not he actually read this. I, I think he did, probably. <laughs> um, but uh, he he certainly would have objected to some of the characterizations uh, of himself here. But um, you know, basically, George III becomes king in 1760. He's 21 years old. Uh, he is becoming uh, ascending to the throne at the tail end of a very long global war with France. Uh, and uh, although that war is a tremendous triumph for the British Army and the British Navy, uh, it also leaves them deep in debt. And he decides that it's high time those American colonists start paying their fair share hmm. of taxes to help pay off some of that debt. And uh, that's, of course, what's going to set in motion a chain of events over the course of a decade and a half that's ultimately going to lead to hmm. independence. So he saw an opportunity to get some money out of these guys. Yeah. And if you look at it, um, compare the 
average tax burden of an American colonist in the 1760s, 1770s, to the average tax burden of a British citizen, there's no question the American colonists paid far less in taxes. Okay. But at the same time, and their argument was, well, we're pretty much taking care of ourselves in spite of the fact that you sent some troops over and helped us out. As you'll notice with this, you know, sometimes you've left us high and dry when we're on the frontier fighting against the Indians. I think there's something else that was really significant that happened prior to this, and that is what we call the First Great Awakening. And uh, that occurred in, uh, well, the 1730s all the way through the 1740s. And you have a turning of American people to God in a special way. And I think it made them really acute to their responsibility to God and also the rights that God had given them because they were more acute to the study of scriptures at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. Are these uh, colonists? Is that the right term? These colonists mm-hmm. until independence, is the right, <laughs> term, <yeah. laughs> right up to there. <laughs> they they um, they had some things that were really bothering them. Is there a list of grievances that they have? Maybe uh, the bigger items in your mind that that you're holding it in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> most he's, of he's the Declaration me, of Independence. <laughs> <laughs> most of the Declaration of Independence is that specific list of grievances. There it is. Um, we're most familiar with the first couple of paragraphs, which lay out the, the general themes, uh, as Mark alluded to, uh, and then the conclusion, which declares independence. Uh, but that long middle part that most people don't memorize, uh, that's the part that actually lists point by point all the mm-hmm. things that have been going on over the past dozen or so years that they're unhappy about. So there must have been an agreement they had in place to begin with with England, such that it was, at least in their minds, legitimate that they could file these grievances and say, therefore, we're declaring so-and-so. What agreement did they have in place? Well, each colony had its own agreement. Remember, you've got 13 Mm -hmm. separate colonies. Each had its own colonial charter, which authorized its existence from the British government, the British crown. Uh, And up until this point... They have been 13 colonies far more closely related to the mother country than in many cases with their fellow neighboring colonies. So this is really, in in one sense, the first national act. And it's still not clear in the minds of many of the delegates, even who agreed to this, whether this is one country declaring independence or whether this is 13 countries declaring independence at the same time. Mm. Yeah, at the very end, I see these, uh, what you call delegates, I guess. There's some 56 signatures here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you think about some of these guys, too, bear in mind that, from a British perspective, they're committing high treason. Mm -hmm. Um, Their lives are forfeit when they sign this. And five of the signers will be captured by the British and will be executed. Mm. And Uh, in some cases tortured. Twelve of them had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army, the Continental Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships in in the war. 
So when they talk about pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, those aren't empty boilerplate phrases. That's reality. Yeah. You see how strongly they felt about it in any number of areas, but I, I think one, when it talks about a prince whose character is thus marked by every act, which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be a ruler of a free people. Nobody could expect George III to feel kindly about such a statement. No. <laughs> I, I, was, exactly. I was surprised how young he was. So what happens next? They, they file this. They weren't able to email it to Britain. How long did it take? That was a joke. But how long did it take <laughs> for this thing to, to get to, to the leadership? Yeah, they didn't post it on Facebook either. No. They no. didn't tweet it. No. no. Yeah, had, had transatlantic communication been what it is today, um, yeah, the, the whole revolution would have been a whole lot different. I've always said if the British generals could have just texted each other, um, <laughs> they might have Can had you a better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it does take time for this to to cross. You know, mm. average crossing time was six to eight weeks. Mm. Uh, that's of course in a wooden sailing ship, and that depends on weather and winds and yeah, whether it actually even makes it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in in one sense, the die had been cast the year before mm-hmm. uh, when the fighting started. Right. Does this really change things? Um, in the long run, obviously, yes. In, in mm-hmm. terms of the immediate conflict, no. The war is already underway. Mm. Um, one of the things it does do in terms of the military conflict is it sends a message to France that the Americans are not interested in reconciling with Great Britain. And that will encourage France to make a formal, open alliance with this new nation, and that mm-hmm. will be a very big help to yeah. the uh, Continental okay. Army. Okay, yeah. So they were already fighting before this time by about a year. Where were they fighting? What locations stand out? Well, the fighting begins in the area of Boston uh, in the colony of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have, of course, the first sort of official battles uh, at Lexington and Concord oh, yeah. uh, on the morning mm-hmm. of April 19th, 1775. Uh, and then two months later, uh, the battle, uh, which is known as the Battle of Bunker Hill, which mm-hmm. took place on Breed's Hill uh, in Charlestown, Massachusetts, uh, in uh, June of 1775. Um, Just to know, Dan, you'll appreciate, you understand Lexington and Concord they were coming to take the guns away. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes, that's exactly... It's funny, before we opened the mics, we had a little exchange (laughs) here. Uh, Not gunfire, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) But I was asking, Mark, what would have happened if um, these guys had had all their guns taken away, and it would have been a completely different chain of events. That's exactly what they were heading to do. And, Mm -hmm. And, of course, they got there... They succeeded, except it was more of a Pyrrhic victory than anything else, Mm -hmm. and they got very little. Most of the guns had been distributed and Mm -hmm. powder and things like that. Yeah. But that's what what set it off, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, and so, you know, George Washington is appointed commander of the Continental Army in the spring of 1775. He starts trying to drill and train and basically take very undisciplined militia and try to turn them into some semblance of a professional army. 
a process he finds enormously frustrating. And over the course of that uh, winter, you have the cannon uh, brought from Fort Ticonderoga Mm -hmm. and uh, put into place, uh, and uh, the British evacuate Boston in March of 1776 Hmm. on St. Patrick's Day, actually, which in Boston is also known as Evacuation Day. Mm -hmm. It's a public (laughs) holiday. Interesting. Um, but now, as they are, as they, it's early July here in Philadelphia, you have to understand the situation. The scene has shifted to New York. Uh, the warships of Admiral William Howe are gathering in New York Harbor. The first of the eventually 32,000 British and German troops are offloading on Staten Island. Hmm. Uh, Opposed to this, Washington has an army of, on paper, 16,000. In reality, about 9,000 of them are actually in any shape to fight. Um, The situation is bleak, really, really when this is issued. One of the great talents of Washington, what made him such a great general, I mean, you could argue that as a battle general, he wasn't the greatest in the world. But he sure knew how to retreat and save his army for another day. <laughs> and that he did many times, no, and he did save his army. Wonderful skill at doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, these men sure were bold to go against the whole British Empire and realizing that they may have to give up their lives for such a declaration. Some of them certainly survived and would become leaders in our new government, I assume. Mm-hmm. What happens next? This thing eventually ends up in England, six, eight weeks transit time. Um, They must be so upset they throw their wigs on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in one sense, it's not a surprise. Uh, You know, when you've already been fighting a war for a year. That's true. um, And and the British, by this time, were convinced the Americans had been conspiring to commit rebellion long before the fighting started. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, you know, they would have just said, well, sure. (laughs) So what we knew all along. Yeah. Surprise, Um, surprise. But it, but it does raise the uh, it does raise the stakes. You know, a, a delegation will go to meet with General Howe uh, and try to negotiate with him. Uh, and his terms are pretty simple: surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes it clear he doesn't come out and say it, but they are aware that he has a list of those who will hang, and that all those meeting with him are on that list. Uh, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and so forth, they will all be executed for treason. Yes. Um, From the British perspective, realize they've got a a tricky task here. I mean, there's the military task, obviously, defeat the rebel armies. Okay, they can probably do that. Uh, But the harder task is going to be winning hearts and minds, as the phrase often is. How do you turn rebels back into loyal subjects? Um, and if you're too harsh, then you just create more rebels. Yeah. If you're too lenient, well, then, you know, maybe they're not really truly coming back. So it's, it's, a, it's almost impossible. Well, ultimately, it will be impossible for the British to do it. Um, but it's a very, very tricky task. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how significant it was, but there is also an undertow in England at that time, which... Wanted to have nothing to do with the war over here. <laughs> oh, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's overseas. Who cares? Just yeah. let them go. 
And General Howe was one of those who had actually voted as a member of parliament against the mm-hmm. war. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. But he's also a professional soldier, and if he's got the king says go fight, it. then you salute and you go fight. So um, this leads to a, I want to say, a new form of government. Uh, certainly we don't have a king. Of course, it leads into what would become our constitution. But before that, we have, what, Articles of Confederation? Yeah, at the same time in June and July of 1776 that you have this five-man committee um, drafting the Declaration of Independence, you have a 13-man committee, one from each colony, led by John Dickinson of of Pennsylvania, who are drafting the Articles of Confederation, which is our first constitution, Mm -hmm. uh, the one we replaced uh, in 1787. and that basically um, creates, as the name says, a confederation of states. It ratifies the existing Continental Congress, where each state has an equal vote. So one state, one vote. It has no executive branch. It has no judicial branch. Uh, it's simply a legislature. And the mm-hmm. legislature can't really make laws. It can recommend laws mm-hmm. to the states, but the states are under no obligation to do them. It requisitions taxes, but the states are under no obligation and, in fact, consistently do not fulfill those requisitions. Part of the reason why the Continental Army is so underfed and underclothed and underpaid is because the states never paid into the general coffers the way they were supposed to. So it's a very weak government, and really, in many ways, it is closer to being like the modern European Union okay. than uh-huh. to the modern United States. Okay. So with time, and I know I'm jumping way ahead now, but with time they realize these articles of confederation are not going to work for us. We need something uh-huh. else. There must have been a lot of debates and arguments and whatnot going on about that. Well, they work for some people, Yeah. Uh, not for others. Uh, most Americans are perfectly happy with the Articles of Confederation, Mm. perfectly happy with a weak government because, as you may have noticed, they don't like strong governments and they don't like paying taxes. No. And they don't care whether that strong government taxing them is in Philadelphia or London. I think I have a lot in common with those folks. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but certainly the, many of the leaders uh, become convinced this, this isn't going to cut it. You know, George Washington uh, writes to a friend, he says, I am convinced that we cannot long endure as a nation with a half-starved government always limping and tottering upon crutches. And I've always thought that when he's writing that, he's picturing some of his own soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, at Valley Forge yes. or Morristown. Um, I mean, he knew better than anyone else how the difficulties of working with this mm. weak, underfunded government. Uh, and there's a reason why he'll be one of the leaders at the Constitutional Convention. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's going to be a difficult process. It's going to be a hard sell to the American public. Yeah, and I think rightfully so, because I think many of these people understood that as soon as you start centralizing your government and putting it there, you have opened the door to tyranny. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think it's maybe playing out right now mm-hmm. and that, and we're seeing it in in many ways it's a balancing act you know it, it is uh, james madison said you know the the difficulty lies in this that you must make the government strong enough to control the governed 
and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Yeah. You know, it's got to be strong enough to get the job done, but not so strong that it starts abusing its power. Well, that's a very difficult balancing act. It really is. And I think theologically, one of the things that many of these founding fathers were astute enough to understand is the fallenness of man. Right. And when you understand the depravity of man, I mean, after all, you know, as G.K. Chesterton said, if if we were all angels, we wouldn't need a government at all. <laughs> and so you need a government, but then if you've got the government, well, the government can turn around and be as corrupt as the people you're trying to control. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see, and that's why they have these checks and balances. Biblically, you can see it. Look at what happened to Israel. Israel comes out, and they have the time of the judges, very weak central government. You have people falling away. Uh, The scripture says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, that's the problem. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. God expected them to do what was right in his eyes. Mm -hmm. That's why he had given them the law. But they decided not to follow it. They fall away. Then the judges come in. Well, the judges are there for a temporary period. Brings them back. Finally, they say, no, we want a king. Mm. And it's interesting, the layout in 1 Samuel 8. You know, what is this king going to do to you? (laughs) The king is going to take your children. He's going to make you go to war. He's going to do all this thing. He's going to tax you. He's going to take all your stuff. And they still want it. Yeah, they do. So sometimes they have a good king. And when you have a good king, David... Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat. You have those good kings that are there. Things go fairly well, but it's really fast to go downhill. I mean, David, you have Solomon's. Solomon's great in many ways, but boy, he pushed the people like nobody else. Mm. And then he turned to idolatry. And right after that, the kingdom is divided. Speaking of fast, I'm looking at the clock, and I realize we're almost out of time. <laughs> um, just wrap-up thoughts, 30-second each, uh, Hans. Yeah, I think what you really see here with the Declaration of Independence um, is the realization that there needs to be a change, mm-hmm. uh, that this government in England is not listening to us, it is not understanding us, it's not understanding our needs, Uh, Our petitions have fallen on deaf ears. Um, Now it's open warfare. The time has come to to make a change. Mm. Um, And that's a difficult, that was a very difficult decision for some of these men to get to. But in in the long run, um, you know, they decided that this is what had to be. Mm. I would say that when you look at the Declaration of Independence, it's an amazing document, and it could come from no other people and people who had a Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm. And if you want to understand it, I'd look at the American Revolution, and if you want to see the seminal thing that caused the American Revolution, it was not the Enlightenment, it was the Reformation. Mm. That's helpful. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me um, today. It's been Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor of History, Ulster County Community College, and Pastor Mark Diedrich. A Plain Answer is a production of Redeemer Broadcasting. We cover a wide range of topics, including theology, government, science, philosophy, education, and, as we did today, history. If you have a suggestion for a future subject, feel free to email us with your suggestion. We can't guarantee that we'll cover it, but we'll give it consideration. Our email address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. 
You may be interested to know that all our programs since we began this program are up on our website. Check it out. They're up there as podcasts. We are found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. This is a listener-supported program, and the views expressed are those of the participants. For A Plain Answer, I'm Dan Elmendorf, and we look forward to you joining us next week at the same time. And we wish you all a very happy Fourth of July. I walked through a county courthouse square On a park bench an old man was sitting there I said, your old courthouse is kind of run down He said, no, it'll do for our little town I said, your old flagpole has leaned a little bit And that's a ragged old flag you got hanging on it He said, have a seat And I sat down Is this the first time you've been to our little town? I said, I think it is. He said, I don't like to brag, but we're kind of proud of that ragged old flag. You see, we got a little hole in that flag there when Washington took it across the Delaware. And it got powder burned the night that Francis Scott Key sat watching it right and say, can you see? And it got a bad rip in New Orleans With Packingham and Jackson tugging at its seams And it almost fell at the Alamo Beside the Texas flag, but she waved on though She got cut with a sword at Chancellorsville And she got cut again at Shiloh Hill There was Robert E. Lee, Beauregard and Bragg And the south wind blew hard on that ragged old flag On Flanders Field in World War I She got a big hole from a Bertha gun She turned blood red in World War II She hung limp and low a time or two She was in Korea, Vietnam She went where she was sent by her Uncle Sam She waved from our ships upon the briny foam And now they've about quit waving back here at home In her own good land here she's been abused She's been burned, dishonored, denied and refused And the government for which she stands Is scandalized throughout the land And she's getting threadbare and she's wearing thin But she's in good shape for the shape she's in She's been through the fire before And I believe she can take a whole lot more So we raise her up every morning We take her down every night We don't let her touch the ground And we fold her up right On second thought I do like to brag Cause I'm mighty proud of that ragged old flag